thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 207, Shanghai Becomes Chiang Kai-shek's Stalingrad. Last time, by the end of August 1937, the Japanese Expeditionary Force had managed to connect most of its holdings on the Shanghai coast to make room for the massive reinforcements already en route. Yet Lo Dien was still its most western possession. That had not changed for weeks. The reason for this was that Chiang Kai-shek was ordering his generals to throw everything they had at the invaders. And this had worked, but at the cost of thousands of lives. The result of this massive loss of life was a growing despondency among the Chinese officer corps. As such, it was decided to begin a defensive policy of trading land for time, hoping that Russia's help could make the difference, but even better, that the Western powers would step in to assist, eventually. So, on September the 11th, the troops of Jiang Zihong's 9th Army Group and those of Chen Cheng's 15th Army Group pulled back during the night, several miles away from the determined Japanese. These retreating troops were joined by the Nationalist Reserve Forces to form a new front. By the morning of September 12th, the new defensive line went from the North Rail Station, located just above the international settlements, where the Huangpu River bends sharply at Pudong, south of the fighting so far, north to the eastern side of Jiawang, a mile away. But then it turned to the northwest, which put the new boundary west of Yanghang and Lodian until it ended at the Yangtze River further to the north. To be sure, there was still land just south of the North Rail Station on the western side of the Huangpu River, but that was where the foreigners were, and Chiang Kai-shek did not think the Japanese would try to outflank his new defensive line by going that way and taking on more trouble than they currently had. As can be imagined, those Chinese civilians now abandoned were outraged, and most departed the area. The Chinese military tried to explain itself, saying that they had no choice, that really it was never their intention to push the invaders back into the Yangtze River. After all, they had those massive guns from their warships protecting them. No, the idea, as it was explained, was to delay and harass the landing. How this was to make the people feel better is puzzling. So, there was no overall idea to rid Shanghai of the Japanese military? Then how could life ever get back to normal? To which Chang was hoping the Western powers would be providing the answer. Chang's nationalist government put out the word that this, their latest defensive line, was not unlike the Maginot Line of France, which in 1937 seemed like the one thing that could stop the German Wehrmacht. Yet, truth be told, there were sections of Chang's line that were protected by a single concrete pillbox. Yet it was hoped the civilians and the Japanese would not discover this. As for the Japanese, they suddenly found themselves controlling the entirety of the Huangpu left bank. They also now possessed several good roads and, most importantly, numerous docks with which to unload their reinforcements once they arrived. On the morning of September 12th, General Matsui Iwane, 
commander of the Japanese forces, awoke, having spent the night in the Shanghai Fisheries College near Wusong. He bowed to the rising sun and began to meditate. It was then that he noticed a flower bed, but the plants inside were dying, probably because they were left unattended. Still, as life always finds a way, some wildflowers were breaking through the soil. The general, keeping this vision in mind, wrote a poem. South of the Yangtze, a magnificent view. Coquettish flowers come back to life. The righteous knight has gained victory and is greeted by the bloom of the oleander. Matsui's meditation that morning had been an attempt to quiet his misgivings. Yes, his men had locally been victorious, but a big push had never materialized. Victory at this pace was no victory at all. But then it was reported to him that the Amaya detachment had finally taken Yepu in between the coastline and Lodien. What's more, the men of Amaya had secured a 500-yard perimeter on the western side of the town. Then it was reported that the Ueno detachment, a part of the 3rd Lucky Division, had secured Yanghang south of Lodien, where previously his men had been stopped after they advanced out of Baoshan. And further, they had pushed the enemy another two miles past Yanghang. And yet the general was not content, for clearly his men had only engaged with remnant forces, as the enemy's main body had retreated. How they had escaped during the night, and his men not detect this. Of course, he would take the victories, and he would report them as such to his superiors. But another opportunity had been lost to hound the enemy as they were retreating, thus hopefully pushing them back even further, or destroying them outright. Matsui began to question the offensive spirit of his men, or at least their officers. No matter, the question was now how to proceed from here. By September 12th, the Japanese had landed 40,000 men, and they held a bridgehead of some 25 miles, or 40 kilometers, by 5 miles, or 8 kilometers. In total, Matsui had some 50,000 men, but clearly, They weren't enough, due to Shanghai's size, its difficult terrain, and his number of casualties to date. So far, the 3rd Division had lost 589 men, with another 1,500 injured. The 11th Division had lost 616 men, with another 1,300 injured. If Shanghai, south of his current position, was to be occupied, then many more men were needed. But Matsue knew that, to many in Tokyo, central China was not the main goal. North China was, if only to serve as a barrier to the hated Russians. Doubly so when news came of the Sino-Soviet non-aggression pact. Currently, North China held some six Japanese divisions. What Matsue could not know was that his biggest opponent was Ishiwara Kanji, the head of the general staff Operations Division. He was opposed to expansion in central China, had always been opposed. For Russia was the real enemy. China was nothing more than a place to gather raw materials, to use, again, to fight Stalin. Because a final showdown was thought to be 
only a matter of when. For Ishiwara was known to have warned, ignoring Soviet Russia, at the expense of China, was like chasing the dogs away from the front door while forgetting the wolves approaching the back door. And yet Ishiwara's advice was ignored. More troops were on their way to Shanghai. This was justified by Tokyo after a meeting that concluded with the idea that enough troops should be sent to end that localized conflict by October, perhaps November. Then the North would retain its preeminence. So, as covered, three infantry divisions from home would be sent, along with units from Taiwan. But when Ishiwara heard of this, he resigned out of frustration. He would be sent to the northeast of China, where his story and influence on history was far from over. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. But back in Tokyo, it was as if while one side of the collective brain wanted to send extra troops to Shanghai to finish off the rebellion, the other side knew that this was only the beginning, that total war had come with China. To be fair, the cabinet and military of Japan were in uncharted waters. Heretofore, their actions had been that of punishing strikes or of conquests and limited ones at that. But what could not be ignored was that the fighting at Shanghai had shown that the enemy was willing to fight to the death. Their own troops would fight under any conditions and gladly die for their emperor and country. But that did not detract from knowing that hundreds of thousands, probably millions of Chinese men, were willing to do the same. Once the Chinese retreated, they wasted no time in digging trenches. Only trenches would save them from the enemy artillery. But only after digging a few feet, water started to surface. They were, after all, only miles from the coast. No matter, they kept digging. Soon, nearby farmers came and helped the soldiers. Then they took apart pieces of their homes to help fortify the defensive positions. After that, the locals packed up what they could carry and went into the countryside knowing, as all knew, that the Japanese would be coming. Then the defenders rested 
exhausted from their exertions. As they regained their strength, they hoped the enemy would not come too quickly, for though young, they needed the respite. And to their good fortune, the Japanese did not approach. Then the rains came. Yes, their trenches filled up, but the men stayed inside them, knowing a shell could come at any second. And shells did come, as the Japanese sought to deny those along the line a moment's peace. But finally, on September 14th, the Japanese attack commenced. First, as always, came the artillery barrage, but the mud soaked up most of the destruction. And because of the mud, when the enemy came, they did so without tanks, who could not navigate the quagmire. This made it a contest of infantry versus infantry. Yet the defenders had their trenches, which saved many lives, and it allowed them to punish the enemy as they approached. The Japanese, as they had for the entirety of the Battle of Shanghai, lost many men. This fighting took place just outside or west of Lodian and to its south. The Japanese controlled the town, had done so since late August, but once their men exited the urban settlement, they were in enemy territory. General Matsui had been right to be frustrated with his men. For, since the Chinese had retreated, there had been no serious reconnaissance to establish where exactly the enemy was and in what strength. Thanks to the farmers' help in camouflaging their dugouts, Aerial patrols could add little intelligence. As the Chinese defensive line was west of Lodian, it ran back east, under, or just south of the town, which meant that when the Japanese tried to use the road from Yepu due east of Lodian, they were challenged by the Chinese, who were hiding in the fields just off the road. So as the Japanese advanced, they were shot at from somewhere out there, beyond the road. As the road west of Lodian was poor, Japanese tanks had a hard time, even when the mud dried up. Yet the road from Yepu to Lodian was much better. So when the weather cleared, another attempt was made. But this one was led by 25 tanks. To be sure, those tanks reached Lodian with little trouble, because, one, they were able to travel rather quickly, and two, the Chinese, and this has to be blamed on Chiang Kai-shek, would not bring forward their anti-tank guns. Chiang was ever mindful of using, and perhaps losing, these precious weapons, so rarely allowed their use at this time. But though the tanks made the trip, the infantry of the Amaya detachment with them did not. Again, they were sitting ducks for those Chinese hiding alongside the road who wisely let the tanks go by. Only after the Chinese left the area, it would have been unwise for them to stay behind, with tanks in their rear, did the Japanese infantry reach Lodian. As for the Japanese advances in areas without roads, it was a cumbersome process. The many little waterways that nurtured the numerous farms caused one bottleneck after another. The advance would have to wait until dark, for the men to then be sent across to secure the other side. Then the ground could be worked on both sides to allow the tanks to cross. These crossings were always watched by Chinese units, who could have taken out many of the tanks 
as they slowly crossed, had they been allowed to use the anti-tank guns. So the area immediately to the west of Lodien remained a no-man's land. The Japanese could not advance without their tanks. The Chinese could not push them back due to their artillery and air superiority. But during this slugfest that gained neither side an advantage, both had reinforcements coming. On September 14th, the day the Amaya detachment reached Lodien, the Shigeto detachment from Taiwan arrived and was placed with the 11th Division. The 11th was now strong enough to move forward, and yet the enemy was also stronger. If the 11th tried to move out, heading south of Lodien, attempting to link up with the 3rd Division, its right flank would immediately be exposed to the Chinese, who controlled the area. Instead, it was decided to focus on the enemy troops closest to Lodien. If they could be annihilated, then perhaps an opening could be made for a general advance. But then the rains came again, for three days straight. By the time the sun came out, the roads were covered in mud. The area in general, again, was a quagmire. As the war over Shanghai stretched out, foreigners began to see the Chinese soldiers, and to some degree China itself, in a different light. To be honest, the country had been pushed around for nearly a century. Letters written by foreigners that were sent home spoke of these mostly scrawny young men who nevertheless made the Japanese pay dearly for the little ground they were gaining. Much of this can probably be attributed to their hard lives. But the world noticed them and admired them. One of the more important letters that reported on the fighting was written by U.S. Naval Attaché Evans Carlson, who was asked by President Roosevelt to regularly report on the situation. Roosevelt might have been pro-Chinese, but getting involved in the war at any level would have been politically perilous. Carlson wrote, My admiration for the Chinese soldier has risen 50%. With the use of a good spade, a few machine guns, and a lot of courage and determination, he has made his adversary pay dearly for the few miles he has advanced in the last three months. He sticks to his position through innumerable air bombings and artillery bombardments, and when the Japanese infantry attempt to rush his position, he is on the business end of a machine gun to stem the attack. The Chinese soldier has the utmost contempt for the Japanese infantrymen. He claims that the latter will not come close in and fight man to man. On September 18th, the mostly cowed Chinese Air Force executed a raid on the invaders. The day was to be marked, no matter the consequences, as six years ago the Japanese had invaded Manchuria. The pain caused since then would be avenged, at least in some small way. The Chinese pilots flying Curtis Hawk 3s, a United States 1930s naval biplane, took off at 7.40 p.m. as the skies were dominated by the enemy during the day. The plan was for four waves of six planes each to bomb the Hong Ko district near the Huangpu River, currently held by the Japanese. The planes went on, dove, dropped their bombs, and pulled up. 
But then the Japanese turned on all their searchlights, temporarily blinding the men. Still, most of them made it home safe. However, as the Japanese anti-air ground units fired up into the sky, much of their shrapnel came down among the foreign settlements. Several people were killed and a few buildings were damaged. The destruction caused by the Chinese bombing was negligible. Still, it had been the Nationalists' most daring and largest raid to date. It was also their last, as the Japanese were planning a decisive strike of their own. As covered previously, the invaders were able to cross the Huangpu River on the northeast corner of the foreign settlements and convert the Japanese golf club into the Gongda Airfield for the second combined air group of the Imperial Navy. It was made operational on September 10th, but then the rains came. More Japanese aircraft were damaged trying to take off than by the enemy. It remained thus for nine days, which the Chinese could have used to good effect to keep the airstrip unusable. But again, as the Chinese planes could only take off at dusk or in the night, they couldn't focus their attacks sufficiently enough. The Japanese had their crews working around the clock to ready the airfield, and as it was almost complete, plans were made to finish off the Chinese Air Force. And as things worked out, the Japanese raid on the enemy airfield near Nanjing would take place just hours after the Chinese air raid in retribution for Manchuria. As the enemy air force was considered unsophisticated, the Japanese attack plan was rather direct. Carrier-based bombers and their sea reconnaissance aircraft would fly directly at the capital city at 10,000 feet, leaving the formation easy to see from the ground. The bombers were simply to fly in and drop their loads. Accuracy was only a secondary issue. What mattered most was the Chinese response. For 3,000 feet above the bombers, in hiding, were the Japanese fighters, ready to pounce on anything that rose from the ground. Their goal was the complete destruction of the nationalist air arm. By 9.50 that morning of September 19th, the 45 Japanese bombers approached the Jurong airfield near Nanjing. Sure enough, 12 Curtis Hawk 3s and 6 Boeing 281s lifted off and charged at the bombers. But just before they could engage, many Japanese Type 96 fighters dropped from the clouds above and raced at the rising Chinese aircraft. On their first pass, the Japanese pilots were able to score several hits. Then the obligatory dogfight ensued. Several more Chinese pilots were then removed from the skies. As the enemy bombers continued their flight towards the Chinese airfield, their fighters made for the city proper. But waiting for them were another 20 defending fighters. However, most of these were taken out by the more maneuverable attacking Japanese fighters. As for the bombers, they left considerable destruction at the Nationalist airfield in their wake. Now that the skies were truly theirs, the Japanese would return that very afternoon to punish the people and government of Nanjing. The attackers came back the next day as well. By September 21st, 
There was no reason to send any Chinese planes into the skies. They would only have been shot down within minutes. Instead, the remaining pilots and their planes would be sent up the Yangtze River, further inland, to hopefully fight another day. As for what was next for the defense of Shanghai, Chiang Kai-shek had decided it was time to shake up his command. This decision he noted privately in his diary on September 15th, but gave voice to his thoughts on September 21st, when his remaining pilots were being transferred inland to save their lives. China's leader sent out two cables on that day. The first stated that he was taking direct command of the third war zone, thereby relieving Feng Zhiwan. Feng would be sent north to the sixth war zone. This suited Feng's subordinate officers just fine, who had mostly ignored their commander and sought direction directly from Chang. The leader's second cable sent more ripples throughout the nationalist brass. Zhang Zhihong was being relieved of command of the Ninth Army Group. In his stead would be Zhu Xiaoliang, a man that Chang liked personally and who was a staunch anti-communist. But these major shakeups, which never come at a good time, was certainly a distraction now. The two generals left, but took their command staffs with them. Hence, there was a two-week gap in which the new arrivals had to come aboard, choose a new staff, and then for all of them to be brought up to speed. That time could have been used to continue to check, or at least harass, the enemy. Alas, this time turned out to be a reprieve for the Japanese, as they still grew nervous as each day's sun set. It was then the Chinese would continue to move around and punish any stragglers or Japanese border patrols. Besides bringing in new blood, Chang also believed he was solving another problem, that of ego contests that soured communication and cooperation between the Third War Zone's head and Chen Cheng of the 15th Army Group, which is why Chang also brought in Gu Zhutong as deputy commander of the Third War Zone. His task was to make sure the various leaders got along and worked together. But just as the structure was getting into place, Chiang Kai-shek ruined all his efforts. By splitting the front into three zones, the left, central, and right wings, on paper, this was done to more effectively handle their reinforcements coming in. In practice, it only added another layer in between the army group commanders and the front. And this at a time when the already punch-drunk defenders needed to be able to respond swiftly and work together effectively.